why does God's plan of salvation for his people rely upon the death of his own son? This is, I guess, the most famous or certainly one of the most famous verses uh, in Scripture that we've just read from John's Gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. One of the most famous things uh, Jesus ever said. And here's the challenge. Jesus thought it was necessary that he should die in order for people to have eternal life and that somehow that is actually an expression of god's love god so loved the world in the, in this way he, he loved the world that he gave his only son and that is a means of salvation and that and that's the challenge how do we understand a loving father offering up his own his only son to die how is that something that a loving father would do how is that an expression of god's love for the world and as i say I, that's probably one of the most challenging things i think uh, to come to terms with uh, about the gospel now i'm not going to be able to answer all the questions that we have about this subject you know we call this the atonement and uh, it is a difficult subject and i'm going to present one particular lens through through which we might view some of these questions there are lots of others um in the scriptures i'm just going to take one angle and and hopefully at least well, we'll be a bit clearer on what some of the questions are uh even if we don't to our complete satisfaction feel like we understand um all of the topic so this is the problem we read in in genesis god created men and women with the intention that he should help him to rule over the things that he'd made. And uh, we remembered earlier, God said, let there be light, let there be a firmament, let there be you know, dry land appear. And all of those things happened. And the conclusion of Genesis chapter one is that God looked at everything that he'd made and it was very good. And he invites men and women as the, the pinnacle of that creative work to join him in ruling over have dominion over the things that i've made and, and what i think is meant by that phrase to made in the image and in the likeness of god that we see in genesis 1 that's about i want you to rule on the earth with my character and my goodness and he gives the instruction i want you to replenish and fill the earth be fruitful and multiply because i want my character to be spread over the, the face of this world. And one of the, the defining things about the world before God's creative work is that it's empty, it's void, it's without form. And throughout the course of chapter one, you see God successively beginning, beginning to fill. It was empty, it was void, and now it is becoming filled. And he, he invites men and women to join him in that work, to fill the earth, fill it with his goodness. However, Adam and Eve disobey God. And, and again, we were thinking earlier, when God speaks, it is done. His word is obeyed. Actually, this is the first time God has spoken and it has not been obeyed. Eat from whatever tree of you like in the Garden of Eden. 
apart from this one particular tree. And that's the first time God said something and it was not done. And that is described in various ways. Commonly, we call that sin. That idea that God had an expectation of you and you failed to live up to that expectation. You disobeyed him or you failed to do something that uh, he required of you. And that's described in various other ways. We can think about Satan, about the devil, the serpent, the various imagery. But essentially, that's the problem. Failing to do the things that God wants us to do. And that's not something God is prepared to tolerate. On this earth that he created to, to be filled with his character, with his goodness. And when he speaks, it is done. He is not, is not willing to have uh, people who are not going to, to fill it with his, his character in the way that he intended. He's not going to allow the, the world to become filled with sin and rebellion against him. And that's punishable by death. That's what you see in, in Genesis 2. In the day that you disobey God's command, you shall surely die. And the Bible teaches that is the condemnation for men and women. Because we do sin. We do uh, fail to live up to the standard that God requires of us. So when Jesus says, this, you know, my death, in some way is about preventing us from perishing that's what he means because ever since adam and eve ever since the garden of eden that has been the consequence for sin and in romans 6 end of the chapter the wages of sin is death the thing that you you earn uh, at the end of uh, of the day is death so that's the problem unfortunately the bible describes a solution to that problem now, we're not going to think in any detail about these passages other than to notice again the coming of Jesus and the things that Jesus did are integral to solving this problem. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So again, not, not particularly explained how and why that works. Just to notice that Jesus' death, that through death, his own death, he might destroy the devil. So somehow it's necessary for Jesus to die in order to solve this problem. Or again, from First uh, John, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That sort of language um, the devil, sin, Satan, various ways of describing essentially the same problem. Uh, whoever makes a practice of sinning, rebelling against God, is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, how does that work? In a in a world where God is free to interact with his creation in any way he chooses, you know, Adam and Eve disobey. God can be reconciled to Adam and Eve in, in any way he wants. He, he could have said, what have you done? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to? Yes, you have. 
demand an apology, it's all it's all fine again. Adam and Eve continue to live in the garden. The Bible ends at Genesis chapter three. So why then does God deal with this problem in what might seem like a very protracted, you know, the, the Bible is in fact thousands of pages long. Jesus wasn't even born until several thousand years after Adam and Eve had, had sinned. Why is God dealing with the problem in this way? And that's really a challenge uh, for us, I think. I'm not going to spend long on the law of Moses, but I'm, I'm including this slide because I think I had the wrong idea about Jesus' death for a while. Under the law of Moses, you know, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, animal sacrifices were sometimes required in order for the people who had sinned to be reconciled to God, to demonstrate that, that they wanted to be right with God again, they wanted uh, God's forgiveness, and they would bring an animal and ask God to accept the life of the animal as their offering uh, in order to be reconciled to him. And I think it's important we don't get the notion that God gave the people animal sacrifices, gave them the law of Moses, but in fact that didn't work. Plan A failed, so Jesus was plan B. He was like those animal sacrifices, but he was better. And actually that's the wrong way around. Jesus was plan A. It was always God's plan that he was going to be reconciled to his people through the death of his son. And the animal sacrifices, the New Testament tells us, were actually there to help you to understand about your need for Jesus and about what his death was going to achieve rather than being a, a plan that God had and it, and it failed. So he had to come up with a, another idea. So here's the dilemma that I'm, I'm trying to uh, articulate. If it's the case, and clearly it is the case, God is free to choose with this problem, deal with this problem in any way he chooses. Why does he choose a way that is so agonizing and humiliating for the son that he claims to love? And we read it this morning. This is my beloved son in uh, Matthew chapter three. And in fact, Paul writing to the Corinthians acknowledges this. We preach about a crucified Christ, which is a stumbling block to Jews and is foolishness to Gentiles. When we preach about a savior who was in fact arrested and tried and convicted as a criminal and handed over to the Romans and beaten and flogged and crucified, that might sound like foolishness. That's your savior? A man convicted as a common criminal? And Paul acknowledges that is a stumbling block. Nonetheless, that is the means of salvation that uh, God shows to us. So how are we going to make sense of this? Well, you can come back to um, uh, John chapter 3. Because John chapter 3, verse 16, is the very famous verse, God so loved the world he gave his only son. But of course, that, that comes within the context of a conversation Jesus is having with a man called Nicodemus. 
So how does he build up to verse 16? Well, he makes a comparison. Um, have a look at verse 14 of John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. So, so Jesus is indicating to Nicodemus, if you understand, if you want to understand about why God is offering his son as a means of life, it's going to be helpful for you to understand about why Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now, what's that all about? Well, we come back to Numbers chapter 21. This is one of the incidents on uh, the wilderness journeys of the Israelites under Moses' leadership. And verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now let's just pause there for a minute and remind ourselves what's happened so far. Under Moses' leadership, God had brought the Israelites out of slavery in the land of Egypt. And they'd come to the, the Red Sea, and God had parted the Red Sea for them to cross safely to get away from the pursuing Egyptian army. And once they were you know, saved from the Egyptians, then they complained, well, we've got no water. So God miraculously provided water for them. And then they complained, we've got no food. So God miraculously provided manna, you know, this sort of wafer-like bread and quails for them to eat. And had continually provided that six days a week, every week, ever since. And listen to what the people are saying. Why have you even brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We don't have food. We don't have water. And we loathe this worthless food. Of course, it's not true. They don't have any food. Because they go on to say, actually, the food that we do have, uh, we loathe. So this miraculous provision God is making for them, they've become accustomed to, they are taking for granted, and they are speaking against God and against Moses. That's what it said in verse 5. And that's exactly what the serpent does in Genesis chapter 3. Contradicts something that God had said. God had said, eat from uh, the, the, this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will die. The serpent said, no, you won't die. Actually, God knows the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, etc., etc. But the serpent contradicts something that God had previously said. He spoke against God. And that is a characteristic of people who are like the serpent. And we're going to see that in a minute in John chapter 8. Um, and this is something that the people now are doing themselves, speaking against God and against the leader that God had appointed for them. And the consequence of that, verse 6, 
is the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And so God afflicts the people with actual serpents because they are behaving like the serpent of Genesis 3. We'll come back to that in a second. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They recognize the nature of their offense against God. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. We realize, Moses, we have been behaving like the serpents, and so God has actually plagued us with actual serpents that are biting us and as much as we are literally being bitten by serpents we realize we have been bitten but you know metaphorically by the serpent of genesis 3 we are rebelling against god speaking against god in the way that the serpent in the garden had done and this is a problem we want you to take away god take away the serpent problem from us now, how is God going to do that? Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So interestingly, God doesn't just snap his divine fingers and remove the serpents he says i want you to come and i want you to look at an image of the problem that you are facing here you are behaving metaphorically like the serpent you are actually being plagued by actual serpents and i want you to come and look at a serpent and acknowledge this is the problem i want you to take away god and if you come and you do that Pray to the Lord for us, Moses, and then you will live. So that's the backstory. When Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is the incident that Jesus is referring to. And I expect, but for Jesus mentioning this, this would probably be consigned to one of a lot of very unusual incidents that happen in the course of the wilderness journey water springing from rocks thousands of quails you know, being deposited on the camp of the israelites lots of unusual things happen and probably we would file that with one of the unusual things that happens on the wilderness journey except for jesus gives it uh so much more significance when he refers to it uh speaking to nicodemus so i just, I just want to quickly take you through this imagery of the serpent the people are being afflicted by real serpents because they are behaving like the serpent. This was going to be an ongoing problem. God had said, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is going to be ongoing tension and uh, a battle between what the serpent wants and uh, the, the children of Eve who are trying to behave in the way that God wants them to. 
Uh, I mentioned we were going to come to uh, to John. This is a discussion Jesus is having with the, the Jews. In John's gospel, the Jews usually is referring to the ruling uh, classes, uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders of the people. The Jews answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. Instead, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when you are confronting me, Jesus says, when you are refusing to acknowledge that I've come from the father and I'm, I'm trying to show you what the father is like, when you speak against me, in fact, you are behaving like your father, the devil. You're behaving like the serpent of Genesis 3. And this, this language is elsewhere through scripture as well. Just to show you right at the end of uh, of the Bible in Revelation 20, and the angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit. And one of the final enemies to be overcome uh, in God's plan, as revealed in Revelation, is the defeat of the ancient serpents, the devil, Satan, opposition to God. And so that's what Jesus is referring to. In the same way as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And that is so, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If you've been bitten by the serpent in numbers and you wanted to live, you had to go and look at the bronze serpent that had been set up. And then you would live. And in the same way, Jesus is going to be lifted up so in what sense is jesus like the serpent if the serpent was a representation of the thing that is afflicting the people you know, this rebellion against god they spoke against god and against moses how how can that be true of jesus you know jesus is not a symbol of rebellion against god is he does that make any sense and I think it does in this way, because when Jesus was placed, you know, publicly displayed as a criminal, an enemy of Rome on the cross, he became a powerful symbol of everything that is wrong with human nature. What events had led to Jesus being placed on the cross? Well, the Jews were envious of him. They were fearful that you know, Jesus and his teaching was going to threaten their own position with the Romans. And uh, the high priest, in fact, said, the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. You know, they're not concerned with whether Jesus is actually speaking the truth, whether Jesus is actually who he claims to be. We're going to lose our place. And even Pilate knows they have delivered him to Pilate because they are envious of him. They'd set up false witnesses to lie about Jesus, to misrepresent the things that he'd said. 
they tried to deny the wonderful things that he'd been doing. We thought earlier about the man born blind, tried to deny that Jesus was able to do these wonderful things with the power of God. And ultimately, the reason Jesus was being lifted up was the darkest parts of human nature, the mob that had been stirred up to call for his crucifixion, the soldiers who had beaten him, who had woven the crown of thorns and pushed it onto his head. In that way, Jesus becomes a very vivid symbol of sin, I think. This is the problem that we're dealing with. Now, we might say, well, that's a little over the top, isn't it? You know, I'm, I'm not complicit in the death of Jesus. I wasn't the one calling for his crucifixion. But if I'm honest with myself, I know sometimes I am motivated by envy. Sometimes I'm motivated by self-interest. Sometimes I'm, I lie to, to, to protect myself or to you know, get some advantage for myself. The very same problems that were present in the Jews who spoke against Jesus, I recognize in my own character. I'm capable of those things too. And in that way, Jesus on the cross is as much a symbol for me to come and look at as it was for the Jews. And just like Moses had lifted the serpent up and said, this is the thing that is afflicting you. Come and look at it. Confront your problem and ask God to remove it. Jesus becomes a powerful symbol of the same thing. Have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Towards the end of the chapter, um, verse 16, 2 Corinthians 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That was why earlier I was using the word reconcile. You know, I had 2 Corinthians 5 in mind. This is the way in which God has chosen to be reconciled to his people through Christ. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I, that's how I understand that verse. God made Jesus a symbol, a representation of everything that's wrong, of the problem of human nature, of rebellion against God, even though he himself had not rebelled against God, he had not sinned, Nonetheless, he became a symbol of sin in the same way the bronze serpent was, so that we, in him, might become the righteousness of God. God might take away this problem from us. 
through Christ. And that's powerfully what Isaiah chapter 53 is talking about. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So why did Jesus have to die? Uh, And why did he have to die like that? That's a big question. And it's one that I do not have all the answers to. But an explanation, a comparison that Jesus himself gives us, is just like Moses lifted up the serpent for the people to confront their problem and ask God to remove it. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, was lifted up. And so we can come, metaphorically, to look at the cross, look at what human nature was capable of doing to a, a good man, an innocent man, and ask God to remove those things from our character as well, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So I hope that's a, a helpful angle on the question. There are other questions, I'm sure, about this subject, um, but I hope at least that's been uh, some useful thoughts this afternoon. Thank you.